Good morning. I've been in a good morning. It's good to have you guys all here this morning enjoying our amazing weather in Jacksonville this time of year is about as good as it gets. So uh, as most of you know, over the course of the past seven weeks, we have uh, spent our time as a church teaching truth, the key beliefs that ground our Christian faith. And to the way we've chosen to do it is by going through the Apostles' Creed. And today we're going to wrap up that series. Uh, I want to say I've enjoyed, uh, he got a chance to get a chance to hear Andrew share and preach two weeks ago. Uh, enjoyed listening to Stephen Freeman teach this past week. Uh, we were listening to him as we were driving back from St. Pete um, on our spring break trip. And I love that our church has, um, has the, exper- the opportunity to experience a diverse set of giftings, even from the pulpit. And uh, to be able to, as a church, as we minister together, minister alongside one another, to be able to see how those different expressions of gifts and the different parts of the body come together. And I love that you get it from the pulpit as well, because I, I feel like that's, that being able to hear God's word this way simply adds broadness and depth to our faith. Different gifts, but united in mind, united in heart, united in spirit. And so this week, we're going to wrap up our series on creed. And before we do so, we're going to go through the Apostles' Creed together one last time. So let's all declare together and go through this together. You ready? I believe in God the Father. I'm sorry, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Did I lose you guys? Oh, that's okay. I'm cheating a little bit too. Let's start. He ascended. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Unless you missed our entire series, or if it happens to be your first time here, you know that this series has also been an Awakened Q&A series, which means that over the course of the teaching, as, uh, as I get a chance to share, if there's some things that provoke you, that just draw out a thought, that causes you to have a question or a comment, feel free to text to awakenedqna at gmail.com. We'll be excited about tackling those at the end of our time. So without further ado, let's close out this series the Apostles' Creed, with the forgiveness of sins. So Justine Sacco was a 30-year-old senior director of corporate communications at a leading internet company. And in 2013, uh, she was heading home for the holidays, and, uh, and home for her was South Africa. So she took a flight into London, and then was going to take a flight from London to South Africa. And during her travel time, to kind of keep her occupied, 
she was just tweeting fun little comments, fun little observations that she was making along the way. She commented on the German man that she was sitting next to on the flight to London, said that he smelled a little bit funny. She landed in London, had herself a cucumber sandwich and commented on that. And then right before her 11-hour flight from London to South Africa, she sent out one final tweet. And this is what her tweet said. Going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white, right? Justine then shuts off her phone and she falls asleep in her first class seat, having no idea what was going to happen over the course of the next 11 hours. Now understand that at this time, she had 170 followers. So we're not talking about a huge group here, we're talking about people that she knew, had relationships with, but her tweet went viral. So much so that 11 hours later, when she landed in South Africa, her tweet was the number one trending story in the world. When she turned on her phone after landing in South Africa, the first text she received was from an old friend she hadn't heard from in years. And the text said, I am so sorry this is all happening to you. And she had no idea what her friend was talking about. And then her phone exploded. As she was going through and scrolling through all of the comments, walking through the airport, people were top, uh, taking pictures of her as she was walking through the airport. She was bombarded with hateful messages. She got numerous death threats, many more rape threats, and it didn't end there. The hotel she had booked to stay at canceled a reservation, said, I'm sorry, we're not going to have you stay here. Every other hotel she tried to stay at wouldn't allow her to stay there either. She was fired from her job, and some of her family members had to distance themselves from her because, surprise, surprise, some of her family members actually worked with Nelson Mandela's National African Congress. In other words, there are family members that had spent their entire lives working against racism and against the hatred that seemed to be fomented with her tweet. And all of that was being threatened because of Justine's thoughtlessness. Her life was ruined for years. So I don't want to defend Justine's tweet. Um, that was in uh, incomprehensibly stupid and even cruel comment to make. But we can understand, did I have it up there? We can understand, she probably didn't mean for it to be so. She was in a playful mood, and however foolish that came out, that was not her intent necessarily. And the resulting backlash, even if it was, we can agree, the resulting backlash of that tweet far exceeded the foolishness of that act. For this, there is no, the people who threatened her life, threatened to rape her, was far worse than the comments that she made. We live in a world obsessed with punishment and vengeance. We used to live in a world where we had a reasonable expectation that there would be, uh, the punishment would fit the crime, right? That if you did something wrong, the punishment you experienced would be appropriate to the crime. That is gone in today's social media world, uh, in today's media environment, that outrage has become, public shaming has become such a huge part of punishing those that we feel like aren't conforming to the way that we think 
you're supposed to act. And the accessibility of the internet has allowed us today to completely destroy another person's life online without having met them, without even having a conversation with them. Anger, hatred, division. And if we're to be perfectly honest, maybe some of us have fallen into this too. We see someone typing up or doing something evil, wicked, or even just stupid, and there can be this satisfaction that comes of being able to anonymously shred them online. And that is happening and it's prevailing today in our social media environments. And maybe that's the way it works in the world, but that's not how it's supposed to work with the people of God, especially since we're the ones who have firsthand experience with what it is like to receive the mercy and grace of God. In particular, God forgiving us of our sins. You know something interesting, this declaration, the forgiveness of sins in this uh, Apostles' Creed, it was actually in late edition to the Apostles' Creed. It wasn't in the earliest versions of it. And the reason why it was added was because the church in the third and fourth centuries went through this period where they were being persecuted by a couple of specific emperors, Decius and Diocletian in particular. And what these emperors did was they forced Christians to publicly renounce their faith. They forced these Christians to make sacrifices to the Roman gods, which would, we would call idolatry, under threat of not only their own lives, but the threat was that we will also torture and kill your family if you don't publicly recant and if you don't offer sacrifices to the Roman gods. And so many of them did, and not just Christian church attenders, but many pastors and leaders did as well. Well, after this period of persecution passed, there was a problem. A number of these quote-unquote traitors wanted to return to the church. And the church now has a dilemma. Are we going to receive them back into the church? And if we are, which ones are we going to accept? Do we accept all of them? And do we treat them differently? What about one person who publicly recanted or publicly offered a sacrifice because his wife was being tortured, because his children were about to be killed? Was that any different than someone who just said, oh, I'll just take the easy way out and just recant on my own? Did they need to be baptized again? What about the pastors who recanted? What about the people they baptized? Are those baptisms valid anymore? Or do those people that pastor baptized have to get baptized again? It was a, really, it was a very real crisis that the church was facing. Who to allow back to the church? How that process is supposed to look? And if we just let them back in the church, what about those Christians who did have family members killed because they would not recant? What do we do about them? What about those who remain faithful even unto death? So that was the dilemma that this church, the early church, faced. And it was a huge one. And their decision, right, was that we have to confront the heart of our faith. And at the heart of our faith, here's what we believe. That the church cannot be, is not, and cannot be simply a place for the pure and the spiritually successful. Failures of faith, 
do not, should not exclude a person from receiving the grace of God. As a matter of fact, God's grace is, is given to us because of our sinfulness. Backsliding believers didn't need to be rebaptized, and the forgiveness of sins offered through Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, was to be freely given, offered to all. This belief that the church is not simply the home for redeemed sinners, I'm sorry, is a home for redeemed sinners and not a castle for perfect saints is transformative, right? That idea that the church is the home for redeemed sinners and not a castle for perfect saints. Now, we understand that with that, there might be some Christians out there who quote unquote try and game the system. Right, But at the end of the day, with this declaration, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. What that means is that the basis of our relationship with God is going to be on the work of Jesus Christ and not on our own achievements, not on our own accomplishments, either good or bad. In Psalm 32, the psalmist cries out, finally, I confess all my sins to you and stop trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Romans chapter four, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. With this declaration, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. What we are saying, what the church is saying, is that we believe that whether you were spiritually strong or spiritually weak, you were sustained and supported by the same grace of God. No one is so good that they can live apart from God's grace, and no one is so sinful that God's grace is not big enough or sufficient to forgive and restore you. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. After that declaration, the Apostles' Creed, there's two more that come into play to wrap up the Apostles' Creed. And both of these ideas has to do with our future. And they work together hand in hand. The resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And both of these, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, revolve around us being able to answer this question. Where does your hope lie? Where does your hope lie? You see, everyone hopes. We all do. As a matter of fact, it's oftentimes our hope that drives us to get up in the morning and to do the things that we do. We put our hope in uh, good relationships, which is why we spend time investing in our friendships, spending time with our friends, spending time with the person that we care about, maybe even the person that we love. It's why we invest time in marriage and family. We invest because we hope for and believe in and have confidence in, right, building great relationships. It's one of the things that we hope for in our lives. We hope for a secure financial future. That's what drives us to going to school. It's what drives our deciding what our major is going to be, what our career is going to be. 
It's what drives us to get up early in the morning, to fight through traffic, rush hour traffic, and go to work. It's what drives us to invest and to save money and to think about our retirement. It's because we hope for a secure financial future. We hope for good health. That drives on a number of our decisions as well, doesn't it? It's why we go see the doctor regularly. It's why we go to the dentist and allow that dentist to stick these you know, awful screeching tools into our mouths. It's why we manage our diets the way we do. It's why we exercise the way we do. It's because we hope for good health. I can go on and on, but you get my point, right? We all hope in things, and oftentimes it's our hope that drives our activity. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with these hopes, so long as they say kind of our small hope and never become our ultimate hope, because our ultimate hope can only be in Christ. When any of these things become our ultimate hope, that's when things become problematic. If our ultimate hope is placed in a relationship, then that relationship is doomed to fail because no one, even your spouse, can bear under the weight of all the expectations that come with that, right? You'll end up smothering them. And the reason why is because people just don't make very good gods. If our ultimate hope is going to be placed in money, then you're never going to have enough. How much is going to be enough? How much work do you have to accomplish in order to save enough, invest enough? Well, how, how, uh, how are you going to move away from fear and anxiety when you're constantly looking at how the stock market's doing, how the housing market is doing? The fear and anxiety that will consume you when you think about money and make money your ultimate hope will consume you. If your ultimate hope is in your health, then um, no offense, but you're going to eventually get disappointed because no one can stop time, gravity, or decay. That's just going to happen. So obsessing over what you eat, obsessing over how you stay in shape, those things can easily consume you as well. Again, the difference is what we our small hope is in versus our ultimate hope. Hope And our ultimate hope can never be in something that we can control. That's idolatry, and it will ruin us. And it's what the early church fathers understood. And it's why they close out the Apostles' Creed with these two declarations that reflect that our hope, our ultimate hope, must be in God. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul shares how this idea of what we hope for in the future, what our relationship with God looks like, what the, the blessing of salvation looks like, it begins with this idea of resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there, is, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. So the church at Corinth struggled with believing in the resurrection. It was too fantastic for them. It was too spectacular for them. It was too unbelievable for them to accept. 
And then Paul even shares how some of the leaders of the church, Hymenaeus and Philetus in 2 Timothy 2, they also rejected the resurrection because it opposed science. It opposed reason. It was not something that's reasonable to believe. And even for some Christians today, not even mentioning the world, even for some Christians today, this idea of the resurrection is a tough thing to believe. And so what we do is we just don't talk about it, we don't acknowledge it, and we hope no one ever asks us about it. But Paul has no such reservations, and he continues in that same chapter, and if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection of the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. If our ultimate hope rests solely in this life, then we, more than any in the world, are to be pitied. That is a powerful statement. And what Paul is expressing is that this hope that we have, this hope that we've been given from God, cannot be simply so that we would have a good, healthy, and blessed life here today. That can't be all of it. Because that's not big enough. And the reality is, that's not what all Christians experience. That there are a number of Christians who live shortened lives, who live sick, who are blessed, who are suffering and persecuted. And if that is our hope, then they have not received it. And Paul is saying that if that's what you're putting your hope in, is what you experience in this life, you're going to be disappointed. It's not worth the sacrifice that is made. And we, of all people on the earth, should be pitied. But our hope is not simply in this life. That is not where our hope ultimately lies. Our hope is that as the disciples of Jesus, death has been conquered. And just as Jesus has risen from the dead, so too shall we. Verse 35. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. Paul's sharing, don't imagine, right? Because that's the natural question we would ask. So what does this look like, Paul? What does this look like, Jesus? And Paul's saying, don't imagine that your new life and and new body is going to look anything like the new the life and body that you have right now, right? Which is quite a relief because mine's getting a little flabby in the middle, right? I still have this big head and really skinny legs, which is a bad combination. And I would love to have new hair, right? Something I could do something with, twirl, curl, whatever the case may be. That might be kind of cool. I see all the other guys and I'm like, ah, I'd like to see what that feels like at some point in time, right? What Paul is sharing here is that our new bodies are going to look nothing like our old bodies today, the bodies that we have right now. The bodies that we have now will someday age, decay, and die, and will be resurrected into something completely new 
completely better. And, and for those who don't understand that, Paul is saying, you know what? Here's how you can understand it. God has given us this perfect picture in nature already. When you take a seed, what does a seed look like? It's just this little small thing, right? And, you, and it dies, and then you put it into the ground, and then what happens? Something is born from that, a plant, a tree that looks nothing like that little seed that you put into the ground. In the same way, when our bodies die, what will be born from that will be so unimaginably bigger and more creative and more beautiful than we can possibly imagine coming from this little dead seed. It will be a body that will not deform. It will be a body that will not decay a body that will not be incomplete, and a body that will not be unsatisfying in any way. It'll be better than anything we can imagine, and we get to inhabit it in its prime forever. Paul continues, verse 42. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they'll be raised in glory. They'll be buried in weakness, but they'll be raised in strength. Verse 50, what I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit, our physical bodies as they are now, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. And this brings us to that second hope that we have, right? This idea that dying bodies, which is what we have right now, dying bodies cannot handle or bear the weight of eternity and bear the weight of the kingdom of God. These bodies that we have are not strong enough, capable enough, or glorious enough to bear the full weight of eternal glory and to bear, to be able to stand in God's presence. We need new bodies in order to experience all that God has for us in this new life, life eternal, life everlasting. And that's the second hope that we have, life everlasting. You know, uh, a number of years ago, I had this uh, argument, heated exchange, intense fellowship, intense fellowship with a family member of mine uh, talking about the gospel and talking about Jesus and, and all that. And it just went on uh, for hours, actually. And uh, I'd like to say it's their fault that they pushed all the right buttons. But the reality is I was much less patient way back then. And, uh, and so during the course of our argument, we were talking about eternity. We are talking about salvation, eternal life. And uh, he had the audacity to say that, well, I just don't agree with you because I think it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And uh, my first response was, I have no idea what makes you think the devil is going to let you reign in hell. But, you know, that's kind of audacious. And if God's not going to let you, Satan certainly is not. And, uh, but then he continued and he said, yeah, I have no interest in spending eternity playing harps and singing songs in heaven. That just doesn't appeal to me. And I'd like to say that that was a rather unique perspective, but it's actually not, right? That that's the image that a lot of people have when they think about heaven or imagine heaven. And it's not just them. It's plastered in our art that this is what heaven looks like. And it kind of makes me a bit ashamed, right, as a Christian, that really the most creative people, the most creative Christians we have, and this is the best they can do when they imagine heaven, is playing this harp you know, having little wings and uh, singing songs in heaven to Jesus. That is not 
necessarily, or not what encompasses this life eternal that we have. I think part of the reason why sometimes when we think about eternal life, um, it doesn't stir our souls. It doesn't elicit a longing, right? A passion that says, I can't wait to get there. I cannot stand even the moments I have here on earth, as good as they are, that they will be nothing compared to what God has in store for us. And I think the reason for that is when we think about eternal life, we can focus too much on how the idea of eternal focuses on time. That, that when we think about eternal, too much of our focus is on how long it's going to last. But that's not all that's encompassed in this idea of eternal. The idea of eternal isn't simply about how much time, how long it will be, but it also speaks to the quality of. So De Beers, believe it or not, is, is a diamond company. They trademarked uh, their, their very famous quote. We all know what it is, right? A diamond is forever. Right? A diamond is forever. And when they say a diamond is forever, they're not meaning, oh, man, I'm stuck with this piece of rock for the rest of my life. You know, that's not the emotion they're trying to elicit, right? They're telling you that this beautiful stone that represents your love for this woman, usually, right, uh, is never going to fade. It will always be this good. It will always be this precious. That idea of forever is not merely about length of time. It's about quality. We talk about the idea of eternal love when two uh, people who love one another de declare, whether in marriage or any other time, declare their eternal love for another. You understand they're not saying, yeah, right, I'm stuck loving you forever, right? That's not what the thought is. The idea of eternal love is that this special, beautiful, wonderful thing that we share, it's going to last and be, it will, it will be unchanging. And if anything, it will grow and only get better over time. That's what's being expressed. In the same way, when God talks about this idea of eternal life, he's not talking about, oh man, we're stuck forever in heaven playing harps and singing songs. No, God's saying life. Can you imagine the best form of life that you've ever known? Now, experience, now imagine experiencing that forever. Do you know that, uh, actually, maybe I'll read the verse first, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53, here's how Paul um, closes out this, this passage. He says, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? What Paul is saying here is this hope is twofold. It's not only in the resurrected body, it's in life everlasting. And that when these dying bodies are planted and raised up as bodies that will never die into these immortal bodies, what allows us to experience this amazing life that God has for us, a life that's better and greater than our limited brains can possibly imagine. Why? Where does it come from? It comes from the fact that God is victorious and death is defeated. Death is conquered and God is good. And that is why we will experience the wonder of this eternal life. 
if you imagine that the first aspect, right, if, if uh, the whole idea of this eternal life is it's built upon victory, victory over death, victory over sin, victory over the temporary decay of the life, the shallowness of the life we live today. So how many of you guys have ever experienced victory in some way, shape, or form? I played a sport. I won a contest. I won a competition in some way, shape, or form. Now, here's what I want you to imagine, right? What happens after you win the biggest victory of your life? You're ecstatic, are you not? It's exciting, and not just for a moment, but then you get to go on your victory tour where everybody talks to you, gives you interviews, the whole nine yards. If you can imagine that victory state, that's what God is saying. That's what your eternal life is going to look like. It will be a life of victory, and you will get to spend all of eternity living that way, in that victory, because God is good and death is conquered. We need to wrap up this teaching and wrap up our series, uh, especially with this being an Awakened Q&A series. So if you have any questions, comments, or thoughts, I'm not quite dreading this one, but I'm intrigued. Um, go ahead and send them, please, now to awakenqna at gmail.com. And as you do so, I want to close with this. Amen. Amen is actually the word that closes out the Apostles' Creed. Amen. It's also the last word in the Bible if you go to Revelation 22. Amen. The word itself uh, amen actually means, if you just translate it literally, it means like truly or so be it. But it's not as much a translation as much as it's a declaration, right? When we say amen, what that means is we affirm that what you said is true and we are in agreement. I don't know what we have like that today. I know that if we're saying like in our house sometimes, if we have Josiah to lay around, it's like truth. You know, that's kind of like truth. That's it, right? So you say something, it's like truth. You know, that's what, so that's kind of the idea of amen, right? It's a declaration that says, I agree and I affirm what you just said. I didn't say that right, did I? Do I say it again? Truth. Is this, that's good. Truth, you know, just bam. So, um, and we're in agreement. That is what the idea of this is. So, you know, I shared a number of weeks ago. Uh, when we started this series, the trigger for this series was that for me and, and for as I was talking with my fellow pastors, that at times we were engaged in conversation with some of the folks in our church and just little comments made about things that we believe that just kind of struck us a bit funny, right? Struck me a bit funny. It's just comment about something about, yeah, this is what I believe about God or believe about this. And it's just like, ooh, really? That's, that's what we believe in. And I think that, that sense caused us to sit down and say, you know what, we want to take some time as a church, walking through in a bit more depth what we believe. And now that we're at the end of it, I'm going to be honest with you, I wish we had more time, and I realized how much we didn't cover, how much maybe we should have covered and didn't. That being said, right, as we wrap up this series, I want us, you and I, I want us as a church to make a commitment. And here's that commitment. That if we're ever in a situation, and we will be. Did I just, my voice went up just a little bit right there. <laughs> Ignore it. That if we're ever in a situation where we have to choose between what God says is true and what the world wants us to believe, 
then we will choose God every single time. Can we make that commitment together? That as a church, we decide today and moving forward that whenever there's a conflict between what God says is true and what the world wants us to think is true, whenever those two come in conflict, we would choose God every single time without shame, without hesitation, without reservation. Because I get it, right? When we say that we agree with what God says is true on a number of the messy issues that are out there today, it can be embarrassing. It can be tough to take that stand. It can make us look like we're uh, quaint or irrelevant or out of touch. And I'm just saying that we make a commitment that if that is the case, then so be it, right? So what? So what if it does? Who are we trying to please? Are we trying to please them? Because if that's our pursuit, then just accept that you're going to live a life where you will never be satisfied because they won't ever be satisfied. I think that's what, for us, we wanted to have come out as the heart of this series It's to not only affirm what we believe is what God says is true, but to make that declaration that whenever it comes in conflict with what the world tells us we are to believe, we will choose God every single time. And if that puts us in a place where we're a little bit embarrassed or a little bit humiliated or we get made fun of or someone decides to put us down, then so be it. Amen? Amen. All right, let's tackle uh, some of this Q&A. Good night. Wow, okay, let's start tackling. Um, Does God forgive those who publicly renounce him due to persecution if they repent or if they do it to protect others? Does God forgive those that publicly renounce him due to persecution if they repent or if they do it to protect others? I believe so, yes. Right. Uh, So the the question is, if I say I don't believe in Jesus because I'm protecting my family or I'm making the declaration, I guess maybe even behind that question, does that count as blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Right. Which is the unforgivable sin. I don't believe that falls into that category. And I think that's what the church declared in the third and fourth centuries after the persecutions under Decius and Diocletian and even some of the others. It set the precedent for what was to come. And that was that there is no sin that is unforgivable if you repent and turn your heart towards God. That God's grace is sufficient. And I think we can take joy in that and uh, that that is true even today. I'm sorry? Peter denied Christ. Yes, he did. And Judas refused to accept, right, the possibility that he might be forgiven. Is there an unforgivable sin? Also, what if we can't forgive someone? Is that held against us? Um, So I think, in my mind, and again, we probably have to spend a lot more time digging into this than we have today. I'll say that my quick, biased, total frank opinion in this is I believe the only unforgivable sin is that I refuse to repent and turn to God. That that is a sin that can't be forgiven because you're not allowing God to forgive you, right? Uh, I remember sitting underneath a pastor in the Chinese church, and he once asked this question in a Bible study. He's like, what's the worst sin you can commit? 
the worst possible sins you can commit in the Bible. And so we went through, well, murder, I don't know, rape, or I don't know, uh, idolatry. I don't know. It's like, no, it's pride. Because every other sin you commit, you can repent, turn to God, and find forgiveness. Pride, by its very nature, says, I refuse to bow my knee to God. And so that was, that was something that always stuck in my head. Um, how do you reconcile God's forgiveness of sin with administering appropriate consequences for that sin? In other words, a thief would be forgiven in Christ, but should still go to jail or pay a fine, etc. Yeah, that's a great question. So if I understand the question right, what's being asked is, okay, yes, if I commit a sin, if I'm a thief and I steal, can I be forgiven by God? And we as Christians would believe, yes, right? Repent, turn, and you'll be forgiven. That being said, forgiveness doesn't always mean that you, does not mean that you get to escape the consequences of your sin, right? And so there's still a penalty, even in our societal legal penalty that you must pay, and you should not expect that forgiveness means that I will escape all of the penalties or the consequences of my sin. No, that doesn't necessarily happen. But the eternal consequences, right, in terms of what your sin does in separating you from God, yes. In that sense, you can be restored and your relationship with God made new with him. Uh, is there such a thing as being too hopeful and optimistic? Uh, I hope so. I'm pretty positive about that. Just kidding. That didn't work. Um, is there anything as such thing as being too hopeful and optimistic? Wow. I don't know. Um, I would say my wife comes, gets there, right? She's incredibly optimistic, incredibly hopeful. I'll say this. I'll throw this out. I think, uh, I'll say generally, I don't know if you can be, but I do think you can be naive. I think uh, the scriptures, even what Jesus exhorted is, be as wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. I think there is a place of being that we want to be innocent, we want to be hopeful, we want to be optimistic, and I think those are good traits to have. I don't want that stolen or stripped away from the, the, the criticism and negativity of this world. I, I don't want that. One of our daughters is incredibly innocent and optimistic, and I don't want that taken from her. That being said, I think there is a distinction between optimistic, uh, innocent, and hopeful, and then naive, right? And I do think God warns us that naive has to be complemented with wisdom in, in order to, to work at its best. And so that's, that would be uh, my thought on it, but I won't hold hard and fast to it. Do you believe that salvation is a day-to-day -day process or once saved, always saved? Do you believe salvation is a day-to-day -day process or once saved, always saved? Can I say I believe in both? Yeah. I believe sanctification is that process by which God talks about when he says that we're being conformed to the image of Christ, that we're being made more like him. And that's going to happen. That is a, a process of ongoing salvation, that we're being transformed into the likeness of Christ. That will go on day after day. But that in the same time, the relationship that was once broken by our sin, right, has been restored through Christ for those who believe. That is a promise of God, and it's a promise secured by his grace and his love, not by our behavior. And because of that, we can trust in it forever, right? And that's the beauty of what God offers us in salvation through Jesus. And I, I don't think we should ever or could ever minimize that or marginalize that by now placing it um, as a condition of our, the, the condition of salvation is how good we are. We just can't. 
you can't go there. That's not being true to who God is and his word. Um, how do we explain to non-Christians the true idea of everlasting life eternally and concisely? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Everlasting life, clearly and concisely. Man, I'd, I'd just say, uh, I mean, for me, I, I always believe in keeping things simple. I'd say, here's what eternal life looks like. You know that we believe that God has made us for something great, that he's given us a great destiny. Uh, eternal life is that we get to fulfill that destiny forever, right? The greatest day you can possibly imagine, live it out forever. And I think that's what everlasting life looks like. It's not just going to be a party, and an ongoing party and celebration. I don't know if that's how I imagine heaven to be. I imagine that eternal life that we have is whatever you were made for, most satisfying and most fulfilling, that's what you get to spend your time doing forever. If you're an artist, create forever and in an increasingly more beautiful way every single time, right? If you're an architect, build, right? Exercise your gift, your imagination, your creativity, and build forever. You get planets to work with, right? If you're an engineer, do the same thing. Build parking lots forever. You know, I'm just kidding. That's not what engineers do, right? If you're a teacher, teach. I mean, on and on, that all these ways that whatever God has gifted and made you for, you get to do forever. Plus, I mean, for me, I already told my friends and people, I, I'm asking God for a pair of wings, right? And we get to race forever, and I get to win forever. I'm just kidding. So somewhere in there, right, this is what life everlasting looks like. Um, and I, So I just say it simply is uh, life eternal is being able to experience the best life that God has imagined for us, and we get to experience it for all eternity. Um, Will we lose our individuality in our new bodies like the Borg? Really? <laughs> no, you will be assimilated. Um, no, we will not lose our individuality. As a matter of fact, I think what's going to be most beautiful about heaven is that we get to not only experience but live out the uniqueness of how God has crafted us and made us for all eternity. That here in this world, our uniqueness can often get, uh, get stunted, right? Because we're forced to conform to the way this world works. We have to get certain jobs. And when you get a certain job to make money, you have to act a certain way. You have to be a certain way and da, da, da. And we just have to, we're forced to conform, right? That this world has all these rules that we got to live by. Not that God doesn't have rules. But I mean, we just have these. And so it's all about conformity. In heaven, it's totally the opposite. God has liberated you and created you and put you in a body that says, you know what, all those limitations that kept you from doing all the things that you wanted and imagined being able to do, now there is no limitation. Go for it. And I'm going to make sure that it's celebrated as well. So no, I don't believe that. Um, oh my gosh, just, I need to, I need to stop. Um, man, I'll take one more. If we were to live forever in heaven, living in victory forever, then when will we get our fill of victory? If we're going to live forever in heaven, living in victory, when will we get our fill of victory? That's a really interesting question. I don't know if I ever thought about getting my fill of victory. I think, so, because I'm one of those guys that 
every once in a while, I still dream about the days when my body could play football. And I remember my pass to Josh Pelham, that the last play of the game, I threw the ball for about 40 yards, and we scored a touchdown and won. I still picture that over and over again. I mean, that's, um, I mean, in others, right? Um, I, I find that uh, I'm haunted by failure, but I'm, I'm, I'm impassioned and inflamed by dreams of victory. And um, I don't know if I would have put it in this way. I think I get what you're saying. I think what you're saying is won't it get tiring to celebrate all the time? And I don't think, that's why I said earlier, I don't think hell, heaven and our eternal life in heaven is necessarily going to be this huge party that just goes on forever. Because, yeah, that, that might get tiring, even though our bodies won't get tired, our new bodies won't. I think it's the idea of living in victory, right? I think something happens when we live in failure. When we live in failure, we're haunted all the time, right? We can't get past the way we messed up. We can't get past what has been done to us. We can't get past the way we've been hurt, the way we've been betrayed. Living in that type of failure, it, it, it ties us up, right? And I think this idea of living in victory is we don't have that baggage anymore because sin that caused that is defeated. Death, which might have haunted, it's been defeated. You are now free. That is what victory means, right? You are free from all of that, and you will live free forever. You will never experience anything in this life eternal that will haunt you the way defeat, death, and sin did before. That is what it thinks it means to live in victory, and that I don't imagine any of us can get tired of. I hope we wouldn't, right? Anyway, that's just a thought. I appreciate all your questions. I know there's a number of them I didn't get to. Um, maybe I'll take some time. I'm going to see Captain Marvel today, so I might not get to it until like Tuesday or so because, you know, Brie Larson and Captain Superheroes, we just got to get to that. So, um, but I'll take a shot at getting to those if, if, uh, if I may because I appreciate you sending in. I de certainly don't want to neglect it. Let me close in a word of prayer, and we'll have Larry come up. Thanks for, uh, thanks for bearing with me, and I appreciate you, saints, going through this series with us. It's been a joy and blessing. Lord, thank you so much for this time for the opportunity as a church for us to go through what truth looks like and the truths, the core beliefs that we hold to and cling to, not because we're obligated to, because we're Christians and now this is what we have to believe, but because these things that we believe are what gives us life and hope and faith. And Lord, I pray that for our saints, we would choose starting today that any time the world comes in conflict with what you say. We choose you every single time. And to not be ashamed of it. To have the strength given by your spirit to bear under whatever ridicule uh, that may come from that. Whatever persecution that may come from that, Lord. That we will stand. And whatever the enemy does in striking at us and that we will stand. We'll put on the full armor of God and we will stand in faith. We love you so much, Lord. We thank you for all that you bless us with. And we thank you for this incredible hope that we have. That as great or as bad as this life may be, this is not the best that we will ever experience. As a matter of fact, this is the worst we'll ever experience because it only gets better with you. And I thank you that that is the hope that we have because of your son. We love you. We thank you and praise you. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.